Today we begin our journey together in the book of Exodus, where we meet the man, Moses, who wrote the books we're studying. God's people were held in cruel bondage in Egypt when God commissioned a compassionate brother to be their savior, rescuer, and deliverer. So open your Bibles to Exodus 1, where we will find not only the story of Israel, but the story of our lives as well. We all have a story. When we meet someone new and we're asked to tell something about ourselves, we offer up a version of our lives, usually where we were born and raised, the family we were raised in, and a rundown of our interests and pursuits and education, vocation, marital status. There are many things about our personal stories that we have no control over, where and to whom we were born, aspects of our personalities and abilities and struggles. But there's also a sense in which we oftentimes seek to write into our lives some greater storyline. Many of us grew up with stories of princes and princesses. We read the story of the beautiful princess, whom we wanted to be, and the handsome prince, whom we hoped to find, and their grand romance, and living happily ever after, which we hope to experience. For many of us, this is the story we want our lives to tell. Oftentimes, however, those who choose this storyline to conform their lives to end up frustrated and disappointed because instead of being crowned with a tiara, they have been handed dish rags and colicky babies. And instead of being married to a perfect prince, they're married to men with college debt and smelly feet. Others of us haven't had our expectations for our lives shaped by the Disney happily ever after storyline but by the narrative of the American dream. The immigrant who comes to America with nothing and works hard and smart and makes something of himself or herself. The professional who gets an education, puts in years at the company and retires to spend time on the golf course and live off investment income. Or the young tech-savvy college grad who bypasses the workaday job in an office to launch a little blog that blossoms into a must-read on the web Still others eschew these conformist stories for their lives and embrace the more rugged, non-materialistic lifestyle of simplicity, seeking to make their story one of giving their lives away, building wells in Africa, or simply building a close-knit, healthy family. But these are stories about what we will do, what we can accomplish, stories we want to write for ourselves. But the Bible and the God of the Bible offer us a story meant to tell us who we are and why we're here and what our lives are all about. It's the story we're about to study in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is the story. It is this story that the Bible offers to you, inviting you to make this story the story of your life. And as we open our Bibles to Exodus 1, first we see that it is a story of cruel bondage. To understand this story, we have to go back a bit, even as far back as the Garden of Eden, when God gave Adam and Eve a promise of grace in the midst of the curse, promising that a descendant would one day come and do battle with the serpent and put an end to evil. Genesis traces this promise of an offspring to God's call of one man and the growth of this family into the descendants of 12 sons, 
70 people in all, who find themselves in Egypt because one of these sons, Joseph, has been put in charge of supplying grain in the midst of a worldwide famine. They carry with them the promise that God will bless all peoples in the world through this family. And at the beginning of Exodus, we find this family 400 years later. And here's what we read in Exodus 1, verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. There's something about that that sounds familiar, isn't there? We can't help but remember God's repeated instruction in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as grains of sand on the seashore and stars in the sky. So in this initial report of fruitfulness, multiplication, and the land being filled, it seems that God is at work bringing about his good plan for his people. But when we keep reading, we're not so sure about that anymore. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Clearly, these carriers of God's promises have gone from being welcomed guests of the Pharaoh to becoming an abused slave labor force. Pharaoh, who's an ancient version of a Pol Pot, Stalin, or Hitler, imagines a threat, and he uses that imagined threat to justify his evil scheme, Plan A. He will turn these foreigners into slaves, oppressing them with labor so that the men will be kept away from their wives and will likely die young from overwork, and in this way, their population will decrease and the threat will be diminished. Back in Genesis, when God cursed the serpent, he said that he would put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. And here in Exodus, we see the offspring of the serpent, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who in fact wears a serpent on his crown. And he is at enmity against the offspring of the woman. Had this evil offspring's effort succeeded, had all the male children of the Hebrews been slain, the channel through which the Savior was to come would have been destroyed. But we discover in verse 12 that Pharaoh's plan A has clearly backfired. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now this is no fluke. This is the sovereign work of the one who had made the promise that this family would become a numerous people. Since plan A backfired, Pharaoh turned to plan B, instructing the midwives to kill the baby boys born to Hebrew women to keep them from growing up to be warriors. Why not the girl babies? Perhaps he assumed that the women would easily become assimilated into the Egyptian population once the men were eliminated. But plan B failed too. So finally, Pharaoh stopped hiding behind his secret strategies and went on to plan C. Moving from 
forced enslavement to secret suffocation to outright slaughter. Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is ethnic cleansing on an enormous scale. And when we read it, we realize this is not at all a quaint, safe for the whole family Bible story. Imagine the fear of every pregnant mother when the midwife announced it's a boy. Imagine the agony of having your child ruthlessly ripped from your arms to be unceremoniously thrown into the river. Imagine the wailing that rose up night after night in the homes of Goshen as mothers mourned their murdered sons. This was a terrible time to be the people of God. And if we're looking for a storyline for our lives, certainly this would not be it. But in reality, this cruel bondage is a part of each of our lives. Have you ever seen it in your life? Until we see ourselves as living in cruel bondage, we will never see our need for a Savior. Now, perhaps you see yourself as perfectly free. You do what you want, and you're a slave to no one. Perhaps you're like the Pharisees who said to Jesus, we have never been enslaved to anyone. Well, Jesus responded to those Pharisees saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Well, what does it mean to be a slave to sin? It means that you're unable to escape from sinful patterns of conduct and cycles of guilt and regret. This is the bondage we're all born into and are powerless to break free from until God sends us a deliverer. And just as God sent Moses to lead the children of Israel out of their bondage to the Egyptians, God sent Jesus to deliver you from bondage to the slave master of sin. Bondage to binging and purging. Bondage to materialism. Perfectionism. Pride. Hypocrisy. Hate. Or whatever it is that rules you and robs you of relationship with the one who made you. If you are united to Christ, this bondage has been broken and you're no longer subject to the tyranny, domination, and rule of sin. Now you still may be tempted and you may still sin, but sin no longer has the power to control you like it once did. Perhaps there was an event somewhere in the storyline of your life, when you made a decision to turn away from your sinful ways or you prayed a prayer or even wept over the sin that has enslaved you, and yet you find you are still serving those same old slave masters. If so, you're not living in the freedom Christ has purchased for you. When we look at the cruel bondage the people of Israel endured, and if we look ahead to their deliverance, we realize that their freedom does not come solely by leaving Egypt, but by going to the mountain to worship. God told Moses, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The secret to finding freedom 
is not trying harder, but turning wholly toward God, sensing his greatness and goodness, looking away from all that enslaves you and looking up to who he is. It's being moved by the wonder of this one who lost his freedom so that you could be free. This one who was nailed to a cross so that your chains would be broken. This one who was whipped and beaten so that you could be healed. And here's the invitation this deliverer offers to you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Won't you trade in your yoke to whatever it is that you once thought would bring you so much pleasure and freedom, but has only made you its slave for this yoke that binds you savingly to Christ? The second thing we see in this story is a compassionate brother. To this point in the story, honestly, we really have no interest in this being the story of our lives, do we? Certainly from the vantage point of those who were suffering, all must have seemed hopeless. Many of the Israelites had probably altogether forgotten about God and his promises that were made to their ancestors, Abraham and Jacob. And those who remembered must have wondered if it was foolish to hang on to those promises. But when Exodus 2 opens, hope has been born in the form of a baby boy. Exodus 2, starting in verse 1, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Now, if they were acting purely on parental instinct rather than on faith, surely they would not have placed the basket in the very place where babies were being drowned in the river, but would have taken him as far away from the river as possible. And yet here is this baby in whom God's entire plan for triumphing over evil rests, and he is floating in the Nile River in a little papyrus basket. In the story that God is writing, in this world he has made, nothing happens merely by coincidence. And it is no coincidence that Pharaoh's daughter picked that day and that location for a swim. God was at work. Not only getting her to that place where she would find Moses, but moving her heart to have compassion on this Hebrew baby. Her daddy had just given the edict to have all Hebrew baby boys killed. And it was no small thing to defy her father, the Pharaoh, but she did. And when she named the baby, it would seem she knew at least a little Hebrew. At the end of verse 10, we read she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. But evidently, her Hebrew needed a little work because Moses literally means he who draws out of without realizing it. The daughter of Pharaoh gave this child a name that's less about where he came from and more about what he's going to do. 
draw his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Acts 7 tells us that Moses grew up educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Moses learned linguistics, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, law, and the fine art of diplomacy. Ironically, the training Moses would need to lead his people out of Egypt and shepherd them in the desert was provided in the household of the Pharaoh himself. While Exodus doesn't tell us about what went on in Moses' life during these years, once again, the writer to the Hebrews draws back the curtain, allowing us to see into what motivated Moses and what he valued and the choice he made in regard to where to place his confidence. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, how could it be that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Moses lived 1,500 years before Jesus was born. The truth is that although Moses might not have known Jesus, he knew about the Christ, the Messiah. He knew that the Christ, the offspring of the woman God had promised, was coming and would one day put an end to suffering and cruelty of life in this world. Moses, who had lived for several years in the Hebrew home of his believing parents before being schooled in the halls of Pharaoh's palace, held on to the promise of a Messiah he had learned about from his parents. And eventually, he put everything on the line, demonstrating his faith in the promised Christ. Look back in Exodus 2, verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me? as you killed the Egyptian? Moses was moved by compassion for his brothers. But his efforts to intervene in their mistreatment were rejected and even ridiculed. And he was forced to flee Egypt and head into the wilderness. There we see Moses exercise this same compassionate intervention on behalf of a group of young women who were being abused by a group of shepherds. One of those young women, the daughter of the priest of Midian, became his wife, and then the mother of his child. And Moses named the child Gershom, which means, I have become an alien in a foreign land. Obviously, what was weighing heavily on Moses' heart when this baby was born was that his brothers were suffering in Egypt, and seemingly he could do nothing about it. As we read this story of Moses' birth, deliverance, and rejection, it begins to dawn on us that this story reminds us of another story, a story that will take place 1,500 years later. We remember that there will be another cruel dictator 
who will make a decree that all male infants should be killed. There will be another baby who will escape the death sentence while many other baby boys are killed. We remember that there will be another group of oppressed people longing for deliverance from those who rule over them and one who will leave the royal splendor of his heavenly home to enter into their suffering. And this deliverer will also be rejected by those he came to save, will also be sentenced to death. But unlike Moses, who escaped the king's edict, this deliverer will be put to death. In fact, his death and resurrection will be exactly what is required to deliver his people from their cruel bondage to sin and death. When we begin to make these connections between the great deliverer, Moses, and the greater deliverer, Jesus, it becomes clear that we are not the key characters in this grand story. This story is really about this great deliverer, this compassionate brother. And so I must ask you, does this compassionate brother have a starring role in your story? Is he even part of your story? Or have you perhaps looked him in the face and said by your suspicion of him, your rejection of him, or simply your apathy toward him, the same thing Moses' enslaved brother said to him, which was, who made you a prince and judge over me? At this point in the story, in Exodus, if we knew nothing else about the Bible, we might well wonder if God had abandoned his original plan, his promise, and his people, because there's been little sign of God and barely a mention of him so far. But then, at the end of Exodus 2, we come to this insight into unseen realities. In verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. If we've wondered what God was doing, now we know. He was listening. He was remembering. He was watching. God wasn't unaware or uncaring about his people's suffering. He had not forgotten his promise. Even if his people had forgotten his covenant promise to them, God still remembered the promise he had made. And that's what matters. From beginning to end, our salvation depends not on our remembering or fulfilling our promises to him, but on God remembering and fulfilling his covenant with us. In Exodus 3, we find Moses far away from the life of luxury in the Pharaoh's palace. In verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. You can't get much further away from the throne of Egypt than tending sheep on the western side of the wilderness. Remember that Moses grew up in a household in Egypt 
where all shepherds were detestable. So Moses probably couldn't help feeling that this was as low as he could get. But while this wilderness didn't glimmer with the treasure of Egypt, it did deliver regular doses of reality. Sinclair Ferguson says, 40 years of humiliation and loneliness and isolation and shepherding foolish sheep has rendered Moses meek and prepared him to be the shepherd of Israel whom God will use to bring his people out of bondage. In Exodus 3, we no longer see Moses as a beautiful baby or as a pampered prince, but as a meek shepherd. Look back in Exodus 3, verses 2 and 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. The third significant aspect to this story is that we see the burning bush. At first, Moses was drawn to this great sight because he couldn't figure out what it was. He saw the fire in a bush that didn't depend on the bush for its existence. But Moses quickly discovered that the correct question was not so much, what is this, as it was, who is this? Moses wrote that it was the angel of the Lord who appeared to him in the flame of fire. But it's clear that this was more than the typical angel or messenger. And we know this for a number of reasons. First, fire is a sign of God's presence throughout the book of Exodus, as we'll see later in the pillar of fire that leads and protects the Israelites in the fire of God's presence on Mount Sinai and in the tabernacle. Secondly, Moses wrote that God called to him from out of the bush. Moses clearly identified the person speaking to him as God himself, writing that he hid his face from this fire because he was afraid to look at God. And third, Moses was told to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. Now, it's not a mere angel whose presence makes a place holy, but only God himself. So who is this angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is clearly distinguished from all other angelic beings throughout the Old Testament in a number of ways, and yet is called an angel. Hagar met this angel in the desert, and he comforted her with predictions concerning the future. Abraham heard the angel of the Lord's voice on Mount Moriah telling him not to kill his son Isaac. Jacob spent the night wrestling with the angel of the Lord. This angel of God was in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led Israel through the wilderness. Now, nowhere does Scripture spell it out absolutely, but it does seem to indicate that the angel of the Lord was none other than the pre-incarnate Son of God. So centuries before Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem, he occasionally manifested himself among his people as a ministering angel. It would seem that this angel of the Lord who appeared in the flame of fire is the same person who later wrapped himself in the flesh of humanity. As we see this burning bush in our mind's eye, we realize that even Moses is not going to be the main character in this salvation story. That's reserved for God himself. Notice the first person singular verbs in what Jehovah says to Moses. Look in verse 7. Then the Lord said, 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. I have seen, I know, I have heard, I have come down, says God. Forty years earlier, Moses had taken the salvation of his people into his own hands, but now we see that God alone takes the salvation of his people into his hands. This is the Lord who comes down to deliver his people. By using Moses to accomplish his deliverance, he will give us a preview of the day when he will come down to deliver, not as fire, but as flesh. He will deliver his people, not out of the hand of the Egyptians, but out of their slavery to sin. Not by parting the waters of the Red Sea, but by rolling away the stone. And how does Moses reply? Here I am. And then Moses took off his sandals, a sign in ancient times of willing servanthood as slaves usually went barefoot. But of course, this was before Moses knew what God was calling him to do. As we continue in this account, we find that Moses becomes less eager. He has some questions. And his most significant question is about himself. Look in verse 10. God said to him, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Moses knew that he was inadequate to accomplish such a great deliverance. But it was becoming clear that this story was not going to be about who Moses was, but about who God is, the one who called him and sent him and promised to be with him. We might expect that God would answer Moses' question, Who am I? by pointing out all the ways he has prepared Moses for this task. His Hebrew ancestry, his Egyptian education, his shepherding experience. But this deliverance was not going to be about who Moses was, but about who God is. It will not be up to Moses to do the saving, but up to God alone. Look in Exodus 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel, and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now this is a bit perplexing, isn't it? What kind of a name is this? By giving Moses his name, God showed that he aims to be known, not as a generic deity, but as a specific person with a name that carries his unique character and mission. This name speaks of his eternal and unchangeable nature, of his self-existence and self-sufficiency. Clearly, he is differentiating himself from the gods of Egypt that Moses grew up hearing about day after day in Pharaoh's household. 
This God is dependent on nothing and no one. But in fact, everything and everyone is dependent for its existence upon him. This name forces us to reckon with the vast chasm between who God is and who we are. When God says, I am who I am, he puts an end to our inflated view of ourselves. He also does away with our notion that God can be whoever we want him to be. God didn't say, I am who you want me to be. God is a person, and we cannot shape him into the God we have put on order who suits our ideas of what a God should be. Instead, he ignores our personal preferences and says, I am who I am. I mean, does this really sound like a God you could assign to be your co-pilot? A God you could put in your pocket like a lucky charm? When we discover, I am who I am, Perhaps there are things about him we don't like, things that rub us the wrong way and don't sit well with our preconceived notions or politically correct ideals. But he is real, and he must be reckoned with as he truly is. By revealing his personal name, God demonstrated that he is personal. This revelation of his name was a promise of his personal presence. Whereas the deities of the ancient Near East were impersonal and little more than personifications of natural forces requiring acts of appeasement with no relationship, no communication, no reciprocal action, no moral obligation. This is a God who enters into covenant relationship with people, who makes promises to them and keeps those promises. Look at verse 15 in chapter 3. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And this name was remembered. That's what made it so unbelievable and even offensive. When Jesus who seemed like an ordinary person, began to take this divine name upon himself. The people of Jesus' day recognized that he was claiming to be God, and it was such an offense, such seeming blasphemy, that they picked up stones to throw at him. Again and again, when we come to the New Testament, we hear the words, I am, from the mouth of Jesus as he drew out for us all of what it means for him to be God with us. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. But perhaps the most significant time Jesus identified himself as I am was when a mob came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. In John 18, John tells us, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? 
They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Why would this mob of angry people and brutish soldiers draw back and fall to the ground? Before them stood the same I am who I am that Moses hid his face from in the wilderness. They didn't fall down when he asked them what they wanted, but only after he said, I am he, or literally, I am. That night, Jesus, the great deliverer of whom Moses was only a type, was about to accomplish the great act of deliverance from the cruel bondage of sin that Moses leading his people out of the cruel bondage of Egypt had been pointing to all along. This one who served as a mediator between a holy God and sinful Moses in the flaming fire of the bush was about to become mediator of a new covenant. He would not be protected from the flame as Moses was. Instead, when he became sin for us, the fire of God's wrath enveloped him. The very real story of the suffering of God's people and the raising up of a Savior sent by God, told in Exodus and celebrated throughout the rest of the Bible, is a living preview of the story of salvation accomplished through Jesus Christ. In this story, we see that our salvation is not about who we are or what we can accomplish, but it's about who I am is and what he has accomplished. This is an amazing and important story. And I have to ask you, is this the story that your own story revolves around and draws from? Have you ever seen yourself in cruel bondage? And have you experienced the deliverance that can only be accomplished by your compassionate brother, Jesus Christ? The more your story is about this rescue from bondage, this Savior God sent, this God who has come down and revealed himself, the less your story will be about you and your failures or achievements, your abilities or inadequacies, your circumstances, your opinions or questions. This is the story that enables you to make sense of your suffering and make much of your Savior. It is this story, and only this story, that can fill your story with meaning that will last forever.